it is a pleasure and a pressure to be here uh, this morning. For those of you who are new to Sycamore in the last three years, I'm Harry Long. I'm the former uh, pastor of uh, Sycamore. We came in 1982, went through the church planting stages and all of that up to uh, retiring in the middle of COVID in 2020. In fact, I had to become a televangelist preaching to a camera with nobody out there in COVID and then became a tent revivalist outside when we could meet outside. And so I was kind of scrambling up to the end and the last Sunday was so hot that uh, Mary told me that she had wondered how she'd handle it emotionally for it to be the last service. Well, the way she handled it was to move underneath the crepe myrtle out there where she couldn't even see me. And she said, I hope I can survive till the end. So uh, since 2020, for three years, we've been uh, enjoying the role of uh, being, in a sense, cheerleaders of the kingdom, but uh, investing as well. I was uh, six months part-time interim down in West End in Hopewell. Uh, the next year was 10 weeks or so out at Evergreen in Pulpit Supply. Uh, now I'm a chair, co-chair of the host committee for General Assembly, which will be meeting in Richmond this next year. And I did want the, uh, to lead up to that, to put that before you. I know that many of, many of you have heard that. Um, but we are working to prepare the different activities and support uh, ministries for General Assembly. And we'll need lots of volunteers. So you'll be hearing about that, particularly as we get into 2024. It'll be in June of next year. It's a pleasure because in handing the baton off uh, to Sean, we announced uh, my retirement 18 months ahead of time so we could have a thorough search committee and, and you get everything in place. It's been a delight to see the life and liveliness of Sycamore uh, continue just to be uh, a part of that. And now, last week we had the privilege of hearing Donnie preach and uh, it really enjoyed him and to see the youth ministry uh, continue in his hands as he proclaimed God's grace in his word uh, last week. That was a blessing. It is a pressure because as Sue Bissett came up and told me last week, she, she said, Harry, you better be good next week. <laughs> Thank you, Sue. <laughs> so I guess I should have responded, well, you better pray. <laughs> what is interesting, and this is a pressure, uh, my approach to preaching, as is Sean's, as is uh, the, the approach of yeah, most pastors in the PCA, is to let Scripture set the agenda. So you choose a book or, or a portion of a book, and you preach through it. And because you do that, there may be things that come up in passages that you wouldn't have thought to preach on. But the Scripture sets the agenda. But when you have one chance... After three years, to have a final word, what would you say? What would you say if you were in my shoes? What pressure? And it's a little bit awkward because I'm thinking, I want to pass on something. I want to pass on a, a word of wisdom. You know, they say that uh, uh, with age you gain wisdom. Yeah, but you also forget the details and it begins to, to undo itself. So I started thinking, what would I preach and what passage would I go to? And I, I could have chosen Proverbs 17, 28. Proverbs 17, 28. It says, 
Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. And then I should just close in prayer and let it, <laughs> let it go at that. Uh, but that would be sort of like a mother handing a breath mint to her child saying, this is dinner, this is supper. And that would not really satisfy. So I've chosen two passages, one from the Old Testament and one from the New, that say essentially the same thing. In the Old Testament, we didn't have the detail about Jesus and how God would work out our redemption. But we do have the call to trust in the Lord. They were uh, primed. They were promised. They wanted to see what God would do if they trusted in him. Where would he lead them? In the New Testament passage, we find out what Christ came to do, the fulfillment of all of those promises. So turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. It's a very, very familiar passage. Many of you have probably memorized it. If you haven't, I would recommend that you do and you teach it to your children so that it would come back to mind. Even as I turn to it, this time I notice in the context. I always look at the context of the passages. Verse 7 says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Well, that just hit me over the head because I thought I want to pass on the word of wisdom. It's, it's not the preacher that you connect with. So that, that's the point here. It's the word of God. The preacher's job is just to take a flashlight, so to speak, and shine it on scripture. That's what expository preaching is. It's exposing scripture. It may be book by book. Sometimes I did series like that. It may be verse by verse. But the purpose is to expose scripture so that you are gripped not by the preacher, but by the scripture. It's even more than that because it's not just connecting with a book. It's connecting with the Lord who is revealing himself through his word. So if you have a problem connecting with the message, it could be that the preacher is really boring. I'm still praying that the Holy Spirit will be at work. If you're having a problem connecting with the Bible, then maybe the fault is not with the Bible. Maybe you're just not connecting with the Lord. And that's what I would like to see happen this morning. That you are not convinced by what I say but you're convinced by what scripture says and that you hear not just what a book says, but with the Lord himself who reveals himself. And for that reason, let's pray before we read the passage that God would be at work. Heavenly Father, we do come to you and we pray that you would give us real eyes to see who you are, real ears to hear, and give us hearts that would respond and would trust in you. We pray that your spirit would be at work to accomplish what we can never do in ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I chose a theme. I wanted to keep it simple and not get too grandiose. So our theme is the secret of happiness. The secret to happiness. No small thing about that, right? It's almost such a big thing that it's trite, isn't it? It's like who in a... Uh, a short message uh, can 
Can uh, you know? I know that you're probably saying that that other passage would have been better when we closed in prayer, and that'd be the best sermon they ever preached. Relatively speaking, this is still a short message to capture the secret to happiness. But don't dismiss it yet. There is a real key here, and there's something that should be challenging to you. The secret to happiness is trusting in the Lord, not in yourself, to know what makes you happy. Let me me repeat that. Trusting in the Lord, not yourself, to know what makes you happy. See, the original sin in the Garden of Eden was when the tempter came along to Eve and said, did God really say, don't you want to be like God? Eat of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. And you know what that name, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, means. My brother is the Hebrew professor. If you've been around for for years, you know I've said this uh, many times before. The Hebrew word for know means to choose. It's not just knowing about. Abraham took Sarah into his tent and knew her. He already knew about her. It meant he chose her for his wife. That tree was the tree of choosing for yourself what's right and what's wrong. Or in the words that we're using this morning, to decide for yourself what makes you happy. That's the temptation. And sometimes there is immediate fulfillment. It's like drugs. It gives you a high. You, you, you get that vengeance. You, you, you get that uh, pleasure. You get whatever it is that you're seeking. It's like you get that job. You get that, that spouse. You get whatever it is you're looking for. It doesn't have to be a, a sinful thing in and of itself. But you think that's the key to make you happy. And then there's still something restless about it. Before we read our main passage in the Old Testament, I want to read another passage. It's Jeremiah 2, verses 12 and 13. You don't have to turn to it. Let me just read it for you. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. Who's saying that? You say, well, that's Jeremiah. Declares the Lord. This is the scene. It's like God up in heaven gathers all his angels around him, and he's addressing them, oh heavens, and he's saying, be appalled at this. Be shocked, utterly desolate. What is God so appalled and shocked at? For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. To use our language this morning, my people have turned to themselves to figure out what makes them happy and their broken cisterns. It's actually the expression of a loving God who's grieving over his people. It's like Jesus coming to Jerusalem and weeping over Jerusalem that's about to reject and kill him. He's weeping over their sin. That's the kind of expression here when God is saying, be shocked, be appalled. He's not just righteously indignant and he's going to cast us off. He doesn't want us to come up wanting with broken cisterns. He doesn't want us to turn away from him. 
the fountain of living waters. So that hopefully grabs your attention from God's perspective. Let me ask it this way. Is he shocked at you? Let's read this familiar passage, Proverbs 3, 4, uh, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. The New King James Version says, or he shall direct your paths. We'll get into those two translations in a minute. Let's turn to a, a kid's version of this. I've actually liked the kid's version. Sean introduced that uh, when he came in. The kid's version is really the opportunity for the pastor's paraphrase. The pastor's paraphrase is say, let me put in the simplest words I possibly can uh, for the kids and for the adults too. And for the adults too, in case you missed it. To get, this is what I think the passage is saying. It's interesting in Bible study that Mary and I have been reading uh, this biography of Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a, a really good friend of ours. In the first two years, he was in Hopewell. And he was my mentor as I came here in church planting. And he uh, went on and became a great in the kingdom of God and passed away of cancer and went on to heaven this spring. And his biography had already been, been written uh, after he got cancer, but it was ready for uh, distribution at General Assembly. And Mary and I have been reading it. There's a chapter in it called The Woman Who Taught Him to Study the Bible. It was a university staff uh, lady uh, who uh, had this method for studying the Bible. I'll very brief, I'll shorten it every point. Read through the passage at least twice. Two, identify who's involved in what is happening. Three, note words that are repeated or words of contrast or cause and effect. Four, paraphrase the passage. Interesting. Don't be content with the paraphrase as your Bible that you study. Study a good translation. But it's right to paraphrase it because it, it makes you think about what it's saying. So this is a great thing in worship. So let's put the kids' version up. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, not half Heartedly. Now, for you kids, do your parents ever make you do something you don't want to do? And you do it willingly, but your heart's not in it. One of my older brothers uh, once was punished and made to sit in a chair in the corner. I and mean, he was heard to mutter, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. <laughs> How many of you kids are here in church because your parents made you? See, there's a half-heartedness there. How many of you adults are here because you just know you ought to? My father used to say that the most miserable person might be the half-hearted Christian. The one who says he's committed to Christ, but he's not wholeheartedly committed to Christ. So he really doesn't enjoy the joys that come from following him. And he doesn't enjoy the pleasures of the world either because he feels guilty about them. He's stuck in the middle. Have you ever uh, tried to uh, get on a boat from a dock and you don't really commit? You just put your foot in the boat and one foot's still on the dock? And it just, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't end well, folks. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, not half-heartedly. Two, 
when it says, and do not lean on your own understanding, that just glided over my head. Yeah, we get so used to the words, and we don't talk that way. Do you talk that way? Lean not on your own understanding. What it means is, don't trust yourself to know what makes you happy. That's where all the inner conflict comes from us. When we say, this is what the Bible says, this is what God says, this is what I think I need to make me happy. How many times in counseling did somebody say, I can't do that. Don't, doesn't God want me to be happy? What they're really saying is, I know what will make me happy. And what God is clearly saying here, will not. Hmm. Three, trust him in every, oh, you know, before I go to three, I, 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 did you see a few weeks ago, this is so strange I can't leave it out. There are people that are actually throwing weddings for themselves, it's called sologamy. Not polygamy, many wives, not monogamy, one wife, it's I'm throwing a wedding and I'm marrying myself. Solo agamy. Did you hear that? They'll invite 50 friends and they'll celebrate. And they'll just even go, oh. <laughs> What's interesting is I thought what they're kind of saying is nobody else will marry me. I might as well marry myself. It's a broken cistern. How many of us think that way? Three. Trust him in everything. It's not just about going to church. It's in all of life. Now that ties in so much to being half-hearted about it. If you go to church to fulfill a duty, you're not going to have any joy in the Christian life. But you belong, if you trust in the Lord and not yourself to know what makes you happy, then that becomes the motive for trying to find out, well, what is it that God would have you be? What is it that God would have you do? What does he lead you to? That'll be the climax of this sermon. What did Jesus uh, lead us to? Um, the fourth you know, point of this passage is, he won't lead you wrong. He'll lead you to the best life ever. Do you, do you really believe that? Do you believe that Jesus will lead you to the best life ever? Now, this is not the health and wealth gospel. I'll explain why in just a minute. Lots, well, I'll explain why right now in shorthand. Lots of times we think this will make me happy and to give it up is sacrifice. And to follow Jesus is the hard road. We think the narrow way is the hard way. And sometimes he leads us, this is not a personality test. You might be a very anxious person. Something's happened here. I'm coming undone. There you go. This is not a personality test. You might be a naturally anxious person and you're hearing of the secret to happiness that if, if I were really a mature Christian, I'd just be happy, plastic happy face. It's not that. It could be that the happy person is kind of content and self-sufficient and doesn't feel a need to trust in Christ. It could be that the anxious person feels the need and is trusting in Christ, though it's a big struggle. 
See, so they're different, different personalities. One's not better than the other. And don't mistake that when you look at somebody else. Somebody may be all tied up. And because they're all tied up, they're constantly, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, make your petitions known to God. And you're turning to Christ all the time. Or it could be that the person who's naturally inclined to happiness and, and confidence finds it easy just to commit himself and trust to the Lord and trust that he said everything's going to work out all right in the end. He'll watch over me and he finds it easy. It's not a negative personality either. And the anxious person may be afraid to commit. So they don't really commit to the Lord. You see, the personality is a given and is, one's not better than the other. So remember that. Remember that when you look at other people too and don't judge them about the personality. But ask yourself, whatever personality you are, are you trusting in the Lord or are you trusting in yourself for your happiness? The last uh, you know, verse, and he, will lead you, he, he won't lead you wrong, he'll lead you to the best life ever. Those two translations, he will make your paths, he will make straight your paths, that's the ESV, or what I memorized growing up, he shall direct thy paths, he shall direct your paths, the New King James uh, Version. I used to think, which is it? He will lead you, he'll direct your paths, or he'll make your paths smooth. I see, I read the make straight your paths, he'll make them easy. He'll straighten everything out before you. He'll protect you from the problems of life. That's not what it's saying. And do you know who it was in this church that, yeah, you know, for 38, 35 years, I thought, I need to figure that out sometime. I never really did the deep search on those two verses. It was Cindy Angus giving a talk to the uh, women's brunch a few years back. And she went to this passage and she used the illustration of the airplane. And the airplane has a radio and the radio has a vector, a line that will take it home. That will, you'll establish all the, and I knew this illustration because my father was a pilot and he used this illustration. I never thought about it with this passage. Cindy said what this passage is saying is, you trust in the Lord, he'll lead you straight home. You won't veer off to one side or the other. I got it. And I realized that's, that's the point. He is leading us, and he's leading us in a true direction. We'll get to where he's leading us in just a second. But before we get there, I want to ask you, are you veering off? When I was a, in a teenager, I remember seeing a Moody Bible film about a World War II plane. I'm sure you could look this up and find it online somewhere, too. That was flying over the Caribbean, I guess. They were trying to find a particular destination. And their instruments all of a sudden went haywire. And they didn't trust their instruments. They had been caught in some jet stream kind of air current, and they were far over their destination because they didn't trust their, their instruments, and they ended up running out of gas over the Sahara Desert and died. What an example of trusting in yourself and instead of God's word and the Lord that's behind it.
Well, this idea of veering off has another illustration I'd like to use for it, and it's a saying that I've heard uh, reflected back to me. Uh, every horse has two sides. You can veer off by having the wrong vector by trusting yourself and you're heading off in the wrong direction deliberately. Or you can say, I'm committed to Christ. I want to follow him. I want to follow, study his word. Here's just a point of wisdom. You can focus on one sin that you don't want to fall into. But you need to think, what's the opposite sin on the other side of the horse? I'll give you, uh, well, there's a, I'll just quickly refer to one example. There's a proverb that says, uh, do not answer a fool according to his folly. And the next proverb says, answer a fool according to his folly. It depends on the circumstance. One, one proverb is saying, or you'll be like him yourself. The other is saying, or he'll be wise in his own eyes. You can get it wrong in two different ways. It takes wisdom to apply wisdom. But I want to move to a more important issue quickly. Is it right to love yourself? Think about it. The Christian's instinctive answer is, no, it's not right to love yourself. The greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And that's right. It's a great sin to love yourself instead of God or to love yourself more than God. That's the pitfall of trusting in yourself for what's, what makes you happy. You don't really love him, you love yourself more. But the opposite side of the horse is to hate yourself. God didn't create you to hate yourself. Think of the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, if you hate yourself, that, does that mean you can hate your neighbor? No, it's a natural love for self. And, and the, the call of God is you can love yourself because I love you. You can love yourself because I made you in my image. You have significance and importance that you, couldn't, you can scarcely realize. You're far greater than you think you are. I've often thought that the first membership question should not be, do you admit that you're, that you're a sinner? That presumes a Christian worldview. The first membership question for joining a church should be, do you realize that you are made in the image of God to enjoy a loving relationship with him forever? Do you realize that? That's why sin is cosmic treason to turn away from the fountain of living waters. So the opposite side of you, you hate yourself. Now there's a, a different answer. Say, that's not why I hate myself. I don't hate myself um, in, a, in a bad way. I hate my sin. I hate it that I keep falling into sin. Well, that's, that's actually a part of repentance. That's a good thing. You can hate your sin, but you need to begin with yourself, that classic distinction of loving the sinner, but hating the sin. As you hate your sin, you can go to the cross and realize the love of God for you. You're important enough that he sent his son to die on the cross for you. In the uh, hatred of sin, you find the loving mercy of God to lift you up. Have you discovered that? Well, we can discover it if we turn to the New Testament passage and ask, where would Jesus lead you? Where would Jesus lead you? In Luke 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verses 22 through 25, 
we read what Jesus came to do. And we find that the central, he, he, he came and spent three years with his disciples. And if I ask you, where did Jesus lead his disciples? You might say, well, he led them around for three years and he did miracles. Yes, he did. He showed him his power. He taught them ethics. He taught them things like turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. But the central focus of his teaching was, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but through me. Jesus said, I am the door. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. I lay down my life for my sheep. In this passage in Luke, Jesus says, the Son of Man, referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Where did Jesus lead his disciples? First, he led them to the cross. If you come to church and you've, you've, you've just, you're weighed down with guilt and anxieties and, and, and troubles and, and, and you need a savior, you don't think, I need a Savior. You're just weighed down. Being around church reminds you of God, which reminds you of all these things. It just weighs you down. And then you hear, follow Christ. It's like, I need to do these things. He first leads you to the cross, where you find his great love and mercy given to you. And it's preached every Sunday. You know this in your head. Do you feel it in your heart enough where you can say, I trust Jesus. He'll lead me to the best life ever. The first thing that needs to be dealt with is my guilt, my shame before God, that thing that separates me from God. Jesus leads you to the cross. Then he leads you through life in this fallen world. This is why the, he leads us to the best life ever is not the health and wealth gospel. He led uh, him he went himself to the cross and he said to his disciples in verse 23, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Oh, there's lots of stuff Jesus said to his disciples. He said, the world hates me, the world will hate you too. He said, if you suffer for my sake, you'll, you'll find you know, life. He said lots of things that showed he's not exempting us from the problems in life. We go through the cancers. We go through the rejections. We go through the hurts. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I still trust Jesus to lead me to the best life ever. You know, 100 years from now, none of us are going to be debating what the best life ever is. Here's another area where there are two sides to the horse. You can say, I trusted Jesus for heaven, but it doesn't make much difference now. Or you can say, I'm going to show the love of Jesus now, but you know, you can't really get to preaching at people about salvation and heaven and all of that. That's kind of insulting to people. It's not an either or, folks. It's a both and. But guess which is most important? Guess which is most important? You show the love of Christ now to build the credibility as you share the gospel of Christ so they're attracted to the love of Christ demonstrated in you. But you better share the love of Christ because this is what Jesus went on to say. He said, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? If there were a last word that I had to the congregation where I served 38 years, whether you've been around for a while or new coming in, I would say, I hope that 100 years from now, we'll just be living in glory with Christ in heaven. There's only one who takes you there, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ who leads you to the cross. He leads you through life in this fallen world, your ever-present help in time of trouble, and he leads you home to heaven. I noticed in the reflections, one of the passages that Mike, it wasn't a scripture passage, it was just something to reflect upon at the beginning of the bulletin, just was, was right on, if I can find the beginning of the bulletin here. And it comes from a song. When my body won't hold me anymore, and it finally lets me free, where will I go? Will I join with the ocean blue or run into the Savior true and shake hands laughing? Where will you finally go? See, if you don't think long enough, you may just think of today's happiness. And you think you know better than God. And it leads you away from Christ. If you're not a Christian, we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And in the Lord's Supper, I'm going to go ahead and do what we, we explain the invitation to come to the Lord's Supper to close this, this sermon. Because this is all about following Jesus and trusting in him instead of ourselves. What we're saying when we take the Lord's Supper, take the, the bread, which symbolizes his body, the cup, which represents his blood. And we're saying what Jesus did on the cross when his body was sacrificed, his blood was shed. What Jesus did on the cross is what my sin deserves. And I trust in him and he pays the penalty in full. If you have not surrendered to Jesus, if you haven't given your life to him, if you're still just trusting in yourself, don't take the Lord's Supper. You're saying, I'll stand on my own when I face God. But this is what my sin deserves. You don't want to do that. Instead, take the Savior and receive him as your Savior and Lord. If you have received Jesus as your Savior and Lord, and you can only receive him in both ways. He is Lord. You can't separate him. If you have received him, there's still a struggle in our lives because every day we have to ask, Am I trusting myself or am I trusting in the Lord? And the Lord's Supper reminds you, this is what my sin deserves. I'm going to turn from it to follow my Savior who leads me to the best life ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that if, there's, if there are those who are here who haven't trusted in Christ in this way, that they would just surrender. They would say, I do take you. I give myself to you. I trust in you, not in myself. We don't become perfect at that point, and we go on and, and live our fallen lives in this fallen world, but we live as your children, and we're secure in your hand, but you call us to follow you. We need to hear, rise up, O men of God, as well as Jesus, I am resting, resting. And I pray that we would rest in you and rise up and follow you through all the ups and downs of this life to eternal glory.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.